0: Our, uh, we're going to continue our series in Acts. Um, in Acts chapter 15, we're going to be focused on verses 1 through 22, but we're also going to have to back up a little bit into the previous chapter for the sake of context. Um, this is one of those sermons that's, I think, important, but isn't going to sound super spiritual, but just stick with me, and I promise it'll be worthwhile. Because it's God's word, and I don't need to apologize for it. Stop, Matt. Anyway, um, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray that through your word this morning, you would speak to us, that we would be shaped by it, that we would, uh, that we would have insight into what the message is for us here. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so housework at the Morjinsky House, like, like chores day, is a, is a full team effort. Everyone has a job, including our four-year-old Sojourner. And, um, you know, there's a lot to do. Mow the lawn, pull the weeds, cut down sumacs, throw trash away, clean rooms, find all of the rotten fruit that Sojourner has hidden underneath a couch somewhere, um, you know, get crayon off the walls. It's, it's a lot. And we're not talking about like some sort of crazy perfectionism. We're, we're talking about we need to do all that on chores day just to keep it fit for having human, human habitation, you know, like that we don't get shut down by the health department or something like that. And uh, I typically pull the most disgusting or heavy jobs. That seems to be part of the agreement is that dad, you know, like for instance, if a if an action figure gets flushed down the toilet, you guys know it doesn't go down the toilet. It gets stuck in a, a trap in there and, and you actually have to remove the yeah, anybody ever had to do this? Find like a GI Joe or a, yeah. You, you have to actually take the whole toilet, toilet off. So imagine me, you know, having to empty out toilet water and pull this toilet off. And inevitably, I start hearing on any, on any given chores day, I start hearing a through the wall. It's clearly getting a heated conflict of some kind. And then I'm like, uh oh, here it comes. Dad! right and I have to get called in to intervene in this conflict which is usually something reasonable like she punched me in the face she slapped me in the face she bit me she pushed me I only pushed her because she stepped on my art I told you if you didn't pick up your art I was going to throw it away right all and so on and so forth and I have to step in and intervene and resolve this conflict because when there's conflict going on uh work isn't getting done correct? Like we're we're off mission. We're not getting the things done that we need to get done. So it's mission critical to get this conflict resolved. Now, sometimes if the conflict is of a certain type and it's it's the, you know, the the right circumstances, I'll say, you know what? I'm not going to resolve this. You guys need to sort it out. First of all, I don't want to. And second of all, it is part of raising them up right it's part of getting getting kids towards maturity is being able to handle their own conflicts conflict it, it always kind of brings whatever work is going on to a grinding halt and that's true in the church as well if if a church is in conflict with it itself serious conflict you know the the building of fellowship and trust isn't happening the sharing of the gospel all of the all of the 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 mission the missional aspects of the church aren't happening if that church is having an internal breakdown, right? So, so the resolving of conflict for a church, any church, and the, and the capital C church is absolutely mission critical. Now, here's the thing. I've been through many of these sorts of things, and, and, and the, the first, the first, uh, idea anyone has is, well, let's pray about it and see what God says, because this, this group wants A, this group wants B, they're in conflict. Let's have God decide it. They want intervention. But what if part of God's plan for the church is that we mature enough to resolve our own conflicts? That sounds scary, doesn't it? Do you mean to say that whatever little microfraction of Christ's church we're responsible for, it's actually up to us to resolve these conflicts, and God isn't always going to intervene in an obvious way. Well, yes, but also, as we're going to see in the text today, that God actually provides what we need to handle conflict. Now, the book of Acts, as a quick refresher, uh, the book of Acts, the type of literature it is, is ancient history. And an ancient history isn't just written to catalog events. Instead, it's written so that people in the future would be shaped by this history. And so an ancient history of the church is not just a cataloging of events, but it's for those who are the current caretakers of the church to look back and be shaped by what we find here. Now, Acts chapter 15, we are going to see come to a head the number one conflict Of the first century church. A conflict that was so intense it nearly split the church in two. We nearly had two different Christianities. We came very close. And the thing that you're gonna notice, because I'm pointing it out right now, is that God is silent. Throughout the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit's been like, go over there, talk to that guy. You know, the Holy Spirit has had no problem directly uh, communicating to the church. But in this case, in this most critical of moments, the Holy Spirit stays completely out of it, is totally silent. Now, what is this conflict? Well, we're going to be mainly in chapter 15, but look back with me at chapter 14, 27. And when they arrived and gathered the church together. They declared all that God had done with them and how he opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, who's the they? It's Paul and Barnabas. They had just been on the first missionary journey, and non-Jewish people were coming to Christ in large numbers. And so the church that they were rejoicing with was the church at Antioch, which we talked all about a couple of weeks ago. And so... Non-Jewish people are believing in Jesus. Everyone's happy. Great. 15 verse 1. Look with me. But. Oh, that's a disjunctive. Everyone's happy, but. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Pause real quick. Okay. So no small dissension and debate. We see the conflict. What what do these people want? So these are Jewish Christians. These are believers who are saying, hey, that's great. Gentiles are coming to know Jesus. But first they have to get circumcised and follow the law of Moses or they can't. They can't be saved unless they first become Jewish. Right? This, believe it or not, this is the number one conflict of the first century church this was a tough one and so how do they resolve this conflict well look with me at the rest of verse two it says after paul and barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them paul and barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question this text this chapter is known as the jerusalem council this was an official gathering of the leadership of the church at the time, okay? And Paul and Barnabas and people from other churches are sent as delegate, as delegates. Okay, verse 3. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Okay, so what are we seeing here? How are they handling it? Well, what are apostles and elders? Those are officers of the church. These are people who are empowered to make decisions, and they get together in a council. Okay, what we the first thing that we see the way that they go about resolving this conflict is through a governing structure. Oh, do that for devotions. Mm, good spiritual vibes. You know how sometimes when someone, like, says something that's spiritually profound, you get a, mm, a good mint? Mm, that's a good mint. <laughs> this isn't that. This sounds about as unspiritual as can be, but we have to ask, all right, These apostles and elders that are going to get together in this council, and we're going to see this is where they resolve it. Where did they come from? Who appointed the apostles? Jesus did. Where did the elders come from? Well, they came from the apostles appointing elders as they planted churches. This is the unexciting part of of, uh, of how God set up the church, that God has given us a governing structure. Just say it with me, governing structure. Don't you feel more spiritual? (laughs) Now, it doesn't sound very spiritual. It doesn't sound very exciting. But here's why it's important. Let me tell you a story. When I was 19, I was a highly seasoned Christian leader. I've been a Christian for three and a half years. All of those going to a youth group and (laughs) never being a member of a church. And so some of my friends and I, now that we were no longer in youth group, said, well, why don't we, like, start a gathering, just informal. I'll get my guitar, we'll sing youth group songs in the dark at the top of our lungs, and we'll do communion with Hawaiian rolls. I'm sorry, Renee. It was, we didn't know better. But we were like, yeah, let's do that. And it was, it was like, very passionate worship time. It was great. And soon, other, other young people uh, started coming to it as well, and, and some people even came to faith and we said isn't that great we didn't need a plan we didn't need a structure just worship let it happen shoobity doo and then i w- went out on tour and this was before the days of like cell phones and stuff so i i really hadn't had news of what was going on with the little gathering we started and i get back and a friend came by my house and was telling me about the problems they were having i said well what happened he said, well, you know, we have the living room gathering, and you know Andy who rents a room upstairs? I was like, yeah, I know Andy who rents a room upstairs in the house. He's like, well, he started his bedroom gathering, and, and he's actually trying to get people to go from the living room gathering to his bedroom gathering. I was like, oh, really? He's like, yeah. I was like, well, why doesn't he, he join the living room gathering? He says, well, well, he's, he's doing a different teaching. We didn't even do teaching. We just, like, read the Bible. But he was teaching people that if you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved, Okay. And so I was like, well, what did you guys do? It's like, we just quit. We just stopped the whole thing, <laughs> right? So it's great. Just let it happen until you hit a problem. The plan can't be let's never have a problem. That, does, that is not, that's a non-plan, all right? So for our church, if we want to keep grace and peace on mission, we need a leadership structure. This is part of what God has provided to be able to deal with conflict when it arises, we need empowered, qualified people with a plan to make a decision now, uh for those of you who don't know, we are a Presbyterian church, so that's our structure. Am I saying that like that's the that's like the one God gave us? Well, maybe I'm kidding no I really. Um, there's three basic types of structure. There's congregational, where where the members make the decisions, right, all decisions. There's Presbyterian, where the members elect governors to make decisions. And then there's Episcopal, which, you know, a lot of churches are, where there's a hierarchy that makes decisions. Any way you do it, as long as you have a plan, right? Um, But what we can't do is just leave it chaotic. Because then what happens is you set up a dictator, nine times out of ten or like we did with our gathering you just said this is too hard can't handle this gotta quit so the first thing that God has provided his church is a governing structure it's not exciting but it supports the exciting parts right it's it's the it's the it's the it's the um you know like in a tent you need those poles they're not exciting but if you don't put them in there the tent does not stay up um, so, but structure alone isn't enough. You also need a shared authority. Now, Babylon B had a funny article I liked back when Babylon B was funny. Um, and you probably, so this requires a little background. Um, during the Reformation, they had a saying, sola fide, by faith alone, right? And so this, this says, progressive evangelical leaders meet to affirm doctrine of sola fides. Portland, Oregon, an influential group of the nation's top progressive evangelical authors, speakers, and bloggers met Wednesday evening to officially affirm their recently drafted doctrine of sola feels, sources confirmed. The new doctrine, translated by feels alone, formally outlines one of the essentials of modern-day progressive evangelicalism, that one's feelings are the supreme authority in all matters of theology and practice. An alleged draft of the creed, which was leaked to the press Thursday morning, reads as follows. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in our feels or by good a necessary consequence may be deduced from our feels, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by the scriptures, church history, or theologians. (laughs) Not everybody thought that was funny. I think it's hilarious. But is that the idea? You empower people and they do whatever they want, right? They just say, hey, I'm going to buy my gut. I'm going to make the decision by feeling. If not feelings, then what? Well, let's, let's take a look at how, these, at, at how the, the council of Jerusalem proceeded. Okay, starting from verse 5. It says, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So Peter gets up and he gives his argument as, hey, remember back in Acts chapter 10, guys? I was the first to share the gospel with a non-Jew and the Holy Spirit descended on them. Remember that? And that's what we've seen. Look at what God is doing. God is saving Gentiles. They're receiving the Holy Spirit, even though they're not circumcised or following the law of Moses. Okay. Next, it says in verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So Barnabas and Paul get up, and they share what God has done among the Gentiles. He say, hey, we've been out sharing the gospel among the Gentiles, and God is giving us the power to heal and do all sorts of things among the Gentiles. So both of the, the first two speakers we hear about are saying, look at what God is doing. Verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied. Now, real quick about James. James is not James, the brother of John. He's been martyred at this point. It's also not James, one of the 12 apostles. This is James, uh, who's also called James the Just, who wrote the book of James. He's the brother of Jesus. And James was a very strict, observant Jew, even after he came to accept that Jesus, his brother, was the Messiah. Okay? So he had a great reputation with the Jews of Jerusalem who weren't Christians because the guy was so hardcore about following the law of Moses. So you'd actually expect James to be on the side of the Pharisees, wouldn't you? Look at what he says. Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things, known from of old. So he's saying, hey, you guys are saying that God is at work among the Gentiles? Well, guess what? The book of Amos confirms it. It says that when the Messiah comes, it's not just going to be Jews, but it's going to be Gentiles too. So you put those two things together, they're saying, look at what God is doing, and then James confirms it with the scripture, right? So God has given us his word. This is part of how we resolve conflict, is that God has given us his word. It's, it's like a constitution. It binds all other laws and judgments and actions so yes pay attention to where god is at work but it also needs to be backed up by the word as it was here so god has given us governing structure a constitution but both of these things are only as good as the people who are executing it right the character of the people who are making this call is really really important so for example our Our Congress, since about the year 2012, has been famously inept, They are so gridlocked, they they can't get anything done. They they kick out less legislation than any era before them. And, And I'm not telling you guys anything you don't know. Do you realize that the Congress, structurally speaking, is exactly the same as it was 40 years ago? There's no difference. Congress was far more productive far less polarized, they were making compromises, they were doing all the things you need to do to be a functioning legislature. So structurally it's the same, and the Constitution's the same. What's different? It's how the people are shaped. Now I'm not trying to say that politicians 40 years ago were great, but perhaps they were more functional. What's different now is that we have cable news and social media, much has been written on this that part of what is driving the polarization and gridlock is that you have Congress, uh, you have legislators that are performing for their viral moment, that are trying to stand out from the crowd by, by you know, being more radical than the other one. That, that, that social media gives megaphones to the most radical 8% of either end of the spectrum and they dominate the conversation. And those dynamics shape the behavior of our politicians right if, if if the american people were really into moderation we'd just see a bunch of compromise and working it out but we're not there being so our so the people even though the structure in the constitution is the same the character of the people is shaped by social media and uh, and cable news and there's a conflict there there's a there's a, there's a temptation that comes with conflict right uh, conflict can tend to bring out the worst of us. There's a tendency that you resort to sort of a triumphalist attitude. Not I win, you win, or we both win a little bit of compromise, but I win, you lose, or I win, you die. You know, that, that's kind of where we're at. And, that, that, and we see that all the time. Just look at your average Facebook thread. <laughs> you know? People aren't trying to like work it out, they're trying to win. People don't listen to each other. We misrepresent each other's views. And when you're in conflict, you can get very, very tribal indeed. An idea isn't evaluated for its own merit, but who said it? What's the the source? If it's a source I don't like, if it's another tribe, then I I, I really can't, I'm not even going to listen to it, right? Character is paramount. And we're going to see in the next few verses... Just the difference of character and how important it is in resolving a conflict in the church. Look with me at verses 19 through 21. James is continuing his speech. He says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn from God. Now, the, the word for judgment here doesn't mean that James is passing a decision. He can't do that. Right? What he's doing is not just making a suggestion, but he's making a proposal. Saying, I propose that we do this, and this is the proposal that does get adopted by the council. We're going to see they even issue uh, a, a letter to all the churches. So this is the, the adopted proposal. So he says, he says no, we, we, have to, we have to decide against making Gentiles uh, get circumcised. But but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. So, now that doesn't make, that list is kind of an odd list, like why those four things? Do you know who knows? Nobody. <laughs> why they chose those exact four things. One of them, sexual immorality, is obviously a moral issue, and the other are ceremonial, don't eat meat that's, that still has blood in it, that's a Jewish dietary thing. No one knows exactly why those four things, but their purpose is very clear. Look at verse 21. He says, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So he's saying, hey, all these towns that that Paul and Barnabas are going to that are mainly Gentiles, well, there's some Jews there too, and we need to avoid unnecessary offense. So, Even though the council decides against the Pharisees, it still compromises. It says, you know, there is some wisdom in what they're saying. Even if their main point is not in keeping with the gospel, we're still going to take on board some of their suggestions. Is your mind blown? Did you realize this was possible for human beings to do in a conflict? That they're not just saying, you lost Put your face on the ground so I can stomp on it. You know, that sort of thing. They don't do that. Instead, look at how they treat the defeated. They treat them as brothers. They take on board some of their suggestions. They see the wisdom, some of the wisdom in what they were saying. And and the next thing I want you to notice is how do the defeated behave? Look at verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Bersabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers. So they they wrote a letter, an official letter that was supposed to be circulated to all the churches. They sent delegates with this letter to say, hey, this is official. But did you notice that it said the whole church? Now, who here supposes that a contentious issue like this achieved some sort of Borg-like unity through this council, where everybody who was on the other side is like, yes, we now agree with everything you say, we are the Borg, right? No. No, there were still people who were outvoted, who lost. But they backed the decision of the council. How do you get this? How do you get winners that aren't being triumphalistic and people who lose that are still maintaining unity? Well, look back with me at verse 11. Peter says it. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. What we're seeing here is character formed by the gospel instead of triumphalism instead of tribalism. It's character formed by the gospel. That's, the, God has given us not only a governing structure, not only his word, but he's given us the gospel. When front of mind is pride, I've got to prove I'm the best. When front of mind is self-righteousness, I'm so right and they're so wrong. When, it's, when front of mind is, is rejecting people of the other tribe, You know, they're wrong, so I don't need to listen to anything they say. It's really hard to avoid or resolve conflict if that is what's governing people's characters. But if the gospel is front of mind, if the gospel is shaping character, it's a whole different story. If you've got others centered, right? Jesus died for us, not considering his own interests, but considering our needs. Humility. Christ laid down all of his rights and all of his privileges for you and for me self-awareness right if you're sitting there saying you know what my sin was so bad god had to die on a cross it's hard to have self-righteousness if those things if humility if other centeredness if self-awareness is front of the mind if it's a character shaped by the gospel well it's hard to sustain a conflict People are going to be seeking resolution and unity, repentance and forgiveness. So God, to, to, to resolve conflict, God has given us governing structure, his word, and the gospel. So we need to use what God has given us to resolve conflict in the church. This is absolutely mission critical. How do we do it? And why does it matter to you if you're not like an officer in the church? Well, how do we use the leadership structure? First of all, you got to have one, right? We, we, we took great pains over the last couple of years to get our leadership installed, so we do have qualified, empowered people with a plan for how to resolve conflict. Now, does that mean every conflict needs to come before <laughs> the governors? No, not at all, but they're there if we need it. And not only that, the part of the beauty is, like, let's pretend I go full QAnon, you know, and I'm just like, Tom Hanks eats babies or whatever, and and the church is like, well, what do we do? The pastor's gone QAnon, right? There is actual recourse, not only through our governors, but through regional governance in our church. They can yank me and say, hey, we need to send you to, like, QAnon deprogramming or something like that, right? There is a governing structure to resolve conflict, and it's important that our church understand it. Not only our governors, but also just the the people who are in the church. We need to understand that this this is this is ultimately when we get in really uh, when we get in serious conflict. This is the plan. It's to go to the governors, right? And of course, for our voting members, this is really key. Who, who do you want making that call? That's the question when we come again to nominating and electing governors, okay? Um, also, we need to use God's word. And you might say, well, that's an awfully big book, you know? Exactly. Yeah, the, the, the word of God, the, it, the, the, to be able to handle the scripture well and call on it when needed, in the middle of a conflict, to, be, to know the Scripture so well that you're actually able to access what biblical principles would come into play here. Yeah, that's a big task. That's why you don't just have anybody doing it. But also, that's why we need to stay devoted, and I choose this word intentionally, to the academic level study of Scripture. You might say, isn't that just a Western modernist prejudice? Well, far from it, actually. Did you know that ancient, ancient scribes memorized the entire Old Testament and much of the Talmud? Memorized it. You want to read high-level academic theology that is non-Western? You know that, that like the Council of Nicaea, you ever read the Nicene Creed? You won't understand a word of it. It is really high-level academics. Those are not Westerners. Those were not moderns. Those were African theologians. Those were Asian theologians. Okay? So the idea that, that we all of a sudden are the first people to value academic study is itself a Western prejudice, that the church throughout time and all over the globe did not have some sort of simple lowbrow understanding of the study of the word, but valued the, the in-depth academic study of the word for just this reason. Because if we're going to govern the church the way God wants us to, if we're going to stay on mission, we better be really, really carefully uh, trying to understand what it is that God wants through his word. And lastly, we need to use the gospel. This is really key. We need a community that's formed by the gospel. When, when Grace and Peace or any other church is going to deal with a conflict, it should look a lot different from a Facebook thread. A lot different. There should not be triumphalism. There should not be straw man arguments where you misrepresent your opponent's beliefs. There should be treating one another like family, regardless of what the conflict is. God has given us the tools that we need. And also, we want to see, you know, in any conflict, there is going to be some folks that get their way and some folks that don't, or, or some sort of compromise. But the gospel actually empowers us to be able to listen without being defensive and brittle. Also, when we're on the losing side, which I have been, we need to accept the decision. We don't go to social media and blast people we don't gossip, we don't threaten, right? That, 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 is, that is against the gospel. God has given us a, a governing structure. He's given us his word. He's given us the gospel to resolve conflict, and we need to use what God has given us to resolve conflict. It's kind of like at the very end of Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings fans, anybody? The books, not the movies. Not the movies. Put your hand down if it's the movies. Oh, it's okay. They left out the scourging of the Shire in the movies, which just hurts my heart because it's really key. Yeah, Paul knows. So what happens is is the hobbits and Gandalf are coming back from the Great War of the Ring, right? And they're coming back to the Shire, and they've been riding a long time, and they're like, ah, finally the Shire, our idyllic hobbit land. And some news starts reaching them along the road that not all is well in the Shire. And so the hobbits were like, man. I thought we left all our troubles behind us. It looks like in, the, in our own home, we've got trouble ahead. And, and Mary, one of the hobbits, says, well, Gandalf, I'm not too worried. Gandalf's the wizard who fixes everything. He said, he said, Gandalf, I'm not too worried. We've got you with us, so all's gonna be set to rights. And Gandalf says, I'm with you now, but soon I shall not be. I'm not coming with you to the Shire. You must settle affairs for yourselves. That is what you have been trained for. It isn't my job anymore to settle people's problems but as for you, you will need no help now. You are grown up indeed. That's the idea, is yes, we need to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit, but also God has given us responsibility for a a little sliver of his church, and we need to take very seriously the need to resolve conflict. The responsibility huge? Yes, it should make us you know, work this out with fear and trembling and take these things very seriously. But God has also enabled and empowered us. He has given us what we need to resolve conflict in the church. Please pray with me. God, I pray that your word would be a lamp to our feet, that so many times we don't even know that we need it until we hit the situation that it was intended for. So God, I pray, first of all, that you would, you would preserve grace and peace from destructive conflict, but also that you would continue to give us governors, that you would continue to, that you would continue to speak to us through your word, and that you would continue to shape us through the gospel, that we could be a community that remains faithful and on mission as we deal with conflict. In Jesus' name, amen.